Hello. <clears throat> if you are new, I've been away a while. <laughs> My name's Pastor Matt, and I had a nice little short sabbatical with some challenges along the way, but uh, we're back, and Leslie and I are glad to be here. A friend of the church here handed me a book just before I went away on sabbatical. It was a book by Andrew Murray, a little short devotional, 31 daily devotionals for a month. It's called Waiting on God. And that kind of inspired these next couple sermons as I read that in my sabbatical. It was challenging and convicting and refreshing all at once. Waiting on God and gaining hope. What does it mean to wait on God? It says in verse 15, to rest, to be quiet, and to trust. Does waiting on God mean we kind of sit back, kick back, and kind of wait for God to do his stuff? like saving people and judging the wicked and correcting and transforming his children, uh, that process, uh, moving the world towards God's kingdom coming when Jesus returned. Is, is that what we're supposed to do, wait? Is that what it means to wait? Waiting on God is trusting in his word. Trusting God in his word, knowing the spirit of God has to work to convict people, to save people, to transform people so that they can overcome evil with good. But waiting on God means I have to be alert. It means I have to be active. It means I have to be concerned about finding out and doing Jesus's will. Kind of like what Paul, the apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, let no one deceive you with empty words. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, making the best use of the time, for the days are evil. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Waiting on God, Hebrew word there, used a lot. Look that up in a concordance, or use your electronic devices. Wait, waiting on God. It just fills the scriptures. The Hebrew word here means to look for. If you're waiting for God, you're looking for God. To work, to come, to desire. You're looking for God. You want to see God. You want to meet with God. You're waiting for God. You long for God. Waiting on God. Waiting on the Lord inspires hope. So Isaiah 30, kind of a, a strange ver chapter, I think, to look at today, but I hope to use it so that we gain daily hope, monthly hope, <laughs> weekly hope. Wisdom, we'll gain wisdom from Judah's misplaced reliance and rebellion. We'll learn a better alternative is to trust in God. Isaiah 30 is a part of a whole bunch of judgments of God that Isaiah was announcing, a lot of bad news. But in the midst of all that bad news, there's this incredible message that God always says. Amid the bad news, God speaks, and he speaks about his desire to show forgiving mercy to people who will dare turn to God and receive it. So let's take a look. First of all, I just want to take a moment, Isaiah and his times. I got this, some of this information from Talk Through the Bible. By the way, if you ever want to just have a great little introductory uh, resource for an introduction to every book in the Bible, Talk Through the Bible is a great resource. 
I have a really old copy. It's hardback. You can probably get it online. It's probably cheaper in a paperback form. I recommend it. Isaiah and its times. Isaiah's name, Isaiah's name means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Isaiah served 700 plus, 700 and a little less years before Christ came to earth. Isaiah the prophet is known as, I like to call the book, I've read this, heard it other places, the gospel according to Isaiah. It's an incredible book. In spite of all the prophecies of judgment, there's all kinds of prophecies that point to Christ and point to the gospel. It's kind of interesting. Isaiah can be broken up into two parts. Chapters 1 through 39 focuses on judgment. Chapters 40 through 66 focus on God's salvation and comfort. It's interesting that book breaks up just the way the Old Testament and New Testament does. 39 chapters, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 chapters in the New Testament, 27 chapters focused on the coming Messiah and his grace and mercy that he's going to come to see. And just a few keys. Messiah's character and salvation is described. You're familiar with Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. It's read almost every Advent season. For unto us a child is born, unto us a child is given. Chapters 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, that is, the Christ, our sins. Chapter 53 is probably the key chapter describing the ministry, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in our place. So that's a little bit about Isaiah, just to give some context. So we're talking about God speaking a lot of judgment. And what was that judgment going to look like? Well, it was coming from Assyria right now in Isaiah's day. Assyria was the rising world power conquering all the small nations in the Mediterranean Sea area along the coast. The northern tribe of Israel, tribes, the ten tribes that have broken away from the southern tribes of Israel, you know, the nation split, was conquered in 722 B.C. And Judah was being threatened by Assyria during Isaiah's ministry. And Isaiah was warning the people of Judah, the two little tribes to the south, Turn away from your sister Israel, the northern kingdom's sins. You're following in her footsteps, and you're going to be overtaken. It's not going to be Assyria that's going to do it, but it's the Chaldeans. It's the Babylonians, and that did happen in 586 B.C. So how in the world does 2,700 years ago relate to 2023? What possibly does God want us to learn from this chapter? You read your devices this week, right? Some of you read your headlines, or maybe you still get a newspaper. Political, social, economic pressures can cause fears to escalate. It makes me nervous to see where the world's going. I worry about What's ahead? I worry about what my children are going to face, my grandchildren are going to face. I worry about that stuff. I wonder what's ahead. I don't know. 
And it's in times like those that we can easily kind of forget God and kind of take things into our own hands. Instead of examining our attitudes and our actions to see if they're in God's will or being sinful, turning away from God, we kind of turn to our own ingenuity. We turn to seeking security in politics or in wealth. And those just build the illusion of security. You know, it's not wrong to seek justice. It's not wrong to want to provide a comfortable, safe living for your family, to want to live in a community where people can flourish. It's not wrong to seek those things or to try and make them happen. But when we disregard God in our thinking, we kind of forget about God and his commands and turn to the world's ideas to save us. We're going to head down the path that Israel and Judah, Israel had was on, and was punished by God to correct them, and Judah was on that same bad trail. So this morning, finally we get to Isaiah 30, dig in deep for a few minutes. Are we waiting on God as a congregation? Are we relying on him as a people group, a people that name God and Christ as our leader, our Lord, our savior, the one we follow? Am I personally looking to God above all else to guide my life choices? So Isaiah 30 is just one of countless scriptures that help us to evaluate, are we going astray? Or am I knowing my God and gaining hope in his word and trusting in it? So let's just take a few minutes to investigate Isaiah 30 this morning. Kathy read verses 8 through 18. I want to look first at the misplaced trust of Judah. Look at verses 1 through 7 with me. O stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter and the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zoan and his envoys at Hanes, reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit but shame and disgrace. An oracle on the beast of the Negev. Through a land of trouble and anguish, from where come the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent? They carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I called her Rahab, who sits still, seeking shelter in the wrong shadow. Did you notice the opening line? Ah, oh, stubborn children. That's not a condemnation kind of, ah, oh, you stubborn children. It's a, I pity you, people. You're running to Egypt and it's misplaced. It's expressing, God is expressing pity. And notice he calls them stubborn, not so good, but he calls them children. It's good to know that God is faithful to his promises. 
that even though you're rebelling, rebelling and not really worthy to be called his children, well, how does he address these rebellious people? I remember that I called you my children. I'm watching over you. Please listen to me. Shadow, a shadow is a place of refuge in this picture. In Psalm 36, it says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. So Israel, excuse me, Judah was seeking shelter, not under God's wings, but under the wings of Egypt. I have to say, I had this laughing moment when I thought about this. I looked up um, depressing or disappointing all the some some uh, similar words same meanings and here's what it came up with the sad the subpar the second rate the unfortunate disappointing depressing help of egypt that's what it was ridiculous right and yet they were running to it egypt was a land of trouble Abraham, remember Abraham, the great man of faith? He ran to Egypt when he, he, he left the promised land and he had to lie about his wife, Sarah. Oh, she's my sister. There was a lot of trouble that happened there. God took care of him, but it was a land of trouble. What else happened in Egypt? Good stuff? No, that's where Israel, well, we know from uh, the series that God sent his people to Egypt to protect them, but at the same time, it became a land of what? Bondage. They were enslaved there for 400 years, and then God led them away. And now they're returning back to that land, walking back through the very desert that's dangerous where there's lions. And can I use the line, tigers and bears? And serpents, a lot of bad stuff happened there, but God's grace was on them when he was leading them out and protected them, but now they're going back through that wilderness without God's blessing, and it's only gonna be trouble. What's God's assessment of Egypt, I like what the New International Version translation says, Rahab the do-nothing. You ever notice how kingdoms, old and new, use mascots that are strong and powerful, like lions and tigers and bears, right? They're at the gates or on their symbols or, or powerful snakes or fiery dragons or some kind of powerful creature. We don't use bunnies as a mascot. We don't use hamsters and guinea pigs <laughs> or kittens or puppies. Well, Egypt's animal of choice might have been like a fierce crocodile or, or fiery serpent, but the reality was Egypt with all the facade, all the mascot, was just a do-nothing, no-help, depressing, second-rate, subpar, worthless help. Oh, Church of Christ, wake up. Don't trust political parties and power and influence in the courts to protect us to change people's hearts. That's the work of God. So love mercy, do justice, and walk humbly with your God because Christ Jesus has the power to save us from sin and death, to bring a holy kingdom, to transform us. So walk in the power of his shadow. Don't repeat Jerusalem's rebellious ways.
Jesus when he was here. In Luke chapter 13, we read his lament. And this is what God is saying here in Isaiah 30. Oh, stubborn children, don't run to Egypt. Listen to what Jesus said. You, you remember this line, right? Luke 13, verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your, your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Repeat. That same people hear what Jesus is saying. Isaiah was saying it. Jesus is saying it. Choosing Egypt over God was a heart choice. Kathy read in verses uh, 8 through 18. Just look at verse 8 again of chapter 30. And now go write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for a time to come as a witness forever. For they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, don't see. Who say to the prophets, don't prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. This was willful disobedience. This wasn't they were making a bad choice because they were, were misinformed or they were led astray by bad counsel. They heard God's truth and they said, we don't want to hear it. Speak to us smooth things. Lie to me. Tell me what I want to hear. Seduce me like the adulteress in Proverbs. Entice me away from God. I don't, I just don't want to hear anything more about God. You ever get tired of hearing us preachers preach at you? I just don't want to hear it anymore. You ever tell God that? He can handle that, by the way. Wow. Smooth things. Let us hear no more. God's way was made clear in verse 15, and they said, no. Some of you know J.I. Packer. Maybe that name rings a bell. He wrote a classic book entitled Knowing God. I should reread that. It's really thick. Well, it's not thick, but it's deep. It's good. He also wrote a book called Knowing Man. And here's what he said in that. Drifting into godlessness. Drifting into secularism is inevitable. He was speaking about our culture here in the West. Ignoring, that means we ignore the sacred. We kind of forget about God. We say we don't want to hear about God and his stuff anymore. We put away the spiritual. We, we ignore the supernatural. We only have human ideas, so we focus on materialism. We focus on nature, naturalism. And by that, we become impoverished as a people, as a society. When we lose touch with God and his word, we lose community. We lose our identity. We don't know who we are. We go searching for our meaning and life and our purpose when we ignore God. I love what he says. We lose community. He says, sin kills neighbor love. Think about our society 
and neighbor love and a lack of it. Ignoring God and his word, rebellion, sinfulness, missing God's mark kills neighbor love. It's only when we understand that we're strained creatures, that Jesus Christ came to save us, that he's the only hope to rescue us, that we find life's deepest secret. Do you know what the deepest secret of life is? One of them is contentment. When you understand you possess the pearl of great price, you don't have to look anywhere else. Yeah, amen. I need nothing more than to seek the things because I already possess God's pearl of great price through Christ. What are the results of looking to Egypt for security? Well, we read in verses 13 and 14 that we're going to be like a pottery that's smashed by a wall that's bulging out. The rocks fall and smash the pottery by the falling wall. We're going to plan a swift flight to get away from Assyria. We're going to go to Egypt and there we're going to make an alliance and they're going to protect us. But our enemy's going to ride swifter horses. It's going to fail. And the only thing that's going to be left is a flagpole, like a signal flag that they would wave on top of a mountain, except it's just going to be a flagpole, and it's going to say, you lost. You went to Egypt. You didn't rely on God. You relied on man, humanity, and its wisdom. And all that's left is a single, bare, naked flagpole. Learn from Judah's mistake, personally, corporately, as a group. For thus says the Lord, the Holy One of God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Despite prophetic warning, they said, no thank you. So God had it written down so that we could learn from it. No, God's still speaking today. He's actually speaking in the news headlines, if we're willing to hear it. What's he saying on your electronic device when you read the, what's happening in the world or nearby? What's God saying to us? He's explaining his purposes, but we don't dream that God could speak to us through newspaper headlines, but he does. Isaiah was explaining what God was doing in the world through Assyria and how he was dealing with his people. But those people said, you know what, God, we don't think you have anything more to teach us. It's like Jesus in Matthew 16 said, you people know how to tell the weather. Read the sky and say it's going to rain or it's going to be warm and dry, but you don't know the times and understand what's going on. So what is God telling the world right now? What's he saying to you? They refuse to listen. God's speaking to us. Wrong placed reliance, right placed reliance. Egypt's help is totally worthless. Will you look to a do-nothing or an all-powerful, patient, merciful, do-something deliverer? Look at verse 15 and, and verse 18 again with me. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. 
Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. So you combine those two verses, and we get to see if we reflect on the implications and understand that God is merciful, he's gracious, and the just ways of God, he's our forgiving God. And even when he judges, he's being merciful because in his judgment, he's trying to get people to see his mercy. What's the way of salvation and peace with God? We just sang about that <laughs> so beautifully. In returning, in repentance, and in rest, and relying on, you will be saved, looking to the God, the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the way of salvation. I want to ask you something. Did any of you this morning worry or fret that the pew you're sitting on would hold you up today? Did you think about that today? Did anybody think or worry about that today? That's resting. A picture of resting in God. You don't have to think about it. You know he's there for those who trust in him. He will hold you up. You will live forever even if you die because he has made the way for that. Understand this God. That's the way of salvation and quietness and trust. That will be your strength. What's impossible for us is possible with God through Christ because of his death and resurrection for our sin to make a way to live forever. Look at verse 18. Therefore the God, excuse me, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Ponder that for a moment. Why does God wait to send grace instead of sending judgment. What does he hold back? Well, like Judah, so often we foolishly refuse God's way. So he says, you want to go that way? I'm going to let you go that way. And then you're going to reap the consequences of your bad choices, the disasters of your choices, to teach you your folly. And those who learn from their folly and turn back to the Lord, rest in him, they will find blessing and merciful grace. That's what's waiting for those. Blessed are all those who wait for him. God goes on in verses 19 through 26, and we don't have time this morning to look at them all, but look at what waits for those who turn, return, or rest in the Lord. You shall weep no more, it says in verse 19. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he will answer. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes will see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will... Uh, he will be there to say, hey, you're going the wrong way. That's a picture of our God. That's a picture of our Savior. That's the way he works with those who trust in him, who look to him, who turn to him. And he will give rain for seed. He will meet your spiritual needs, and then he'll, he'll meet your physical needs as well when his kingdom comes. What happens to those who 
refuse the Lord, who say, no, I'd rather not hear anything more about what God wants. Behold, the name of the Lord will come from afar, burning with his anger. His lips are full of fury. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations. Verse 30, and the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger. Verse 31, the Assyrians, those enemies that you're so afraid of, will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord. The Lord waits to be gracious. The God Isaiah knew and wrote about, the holy, righteous, gracious God who saves all who wait on him is the same God who walked in this world named Jesus Christ. Don't miss this simple parallel. Maybe your mind has already connected it. God's word was spoken in Isaiah 30. His word was refused. It was heard and rejected. But for those who turned back to the Lord, indescribable mercy and forgiveness was given when they turned to the Lord. In Luke chapter 15, there is a very famous story. the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. He took the Lord's provision. And what did he do? He took his father's provision. And he went to a foreign land, like Israel was doing in Isaiah, like Judah was, going to Egypt with all the riches. And he wasted them, looking for purpose and meaning in a, in, in, with wild living, it says, in verses 22 and on. And the chastisement of his folly was experienced. And it says he came to himself, or he came to his senses. And he returned to his father. And what did God do? What did the father do? Picture of God. Opened up his arms. Welcomed him, kissed him, put the robe on, that fancy robe, and gave him a ring. And they threw a party and killed the fatted calf. And they celebrated, undeserving as the son was, when he confessed his sin to his earthly father and admitted that he had broken heaven's rules. His father was graciously waiting for him to come, to pour out his blessing and mercy. Children of God, that is who our God is. Don't forget that this morning. That should give you hope. Rejoice in this grace, children of God. You messed up this week. Yeah, you and me and even you people way in the back. And God just says, you're my child. Come and be blessed. Wait on me. Trust in me. Do not be afraid of me. This is our God. And if he is not your savior yet, then do not delay. Hear this word. Don't refuse to hear what God says about your destruction that will come if you refuse him. But if you will turn to him, trust in him, wait for him, you will be blessed. Surrender wholeheartedly. Question, why? Why does God delay when we wait for his deliverance from our trials? Why does the joy of salvation and transformation of, of making us better people seem to be so delayed and so long coming and, you know, 
two steps forward, three or four back, backwards. Why does the scattered taste of joy, why, or, excuse, let me put that differently. Why is the joy of our salvation seem to be so scattered rather than this just never ending banquet? We long for that, right? An ever steady banquet of peace and abundance in our lives. Well, Isaiah 30 helps us understand the answer. God, Jesus Christ, is a good and wise shepherd, so he knows when we're best ready to receive the blessings that he wants to give us. His timing is perfect. They will satisfy us when they come, and, and there's great satisfaction in the waiting sometimes. And God will be glorified, just like in the story of that we... David and, and the crew just preached about the, the story of Joseph, what God was working. Remember Abraham and Sarah's story, the waiting for Isaac, the promise, and the missteps along the way, and yet God was greatly glorified, and they rejoiced like you couldn't believe. They couldn't imagine all that God was planning, and they couldn't believe it when it happened, but there was so much joy. Why does God wait? Because he's a good shepherd. Know God's ways. Remember how he's worked in the past. He's working in our lives the same way. And also, just remember this. Love the blesser more than the blessing. Know your God. God delights to bless, not to curse. Long, long years of dependence teach us about the greatness of God. We close with this. Blessed are those who wait for him. Do you believe that this morning? Let's pray. Lord, we need you to strengthen us so that we trust in you each day. So I ask you to help us to believe your promises. Spirit of God, teach us. Don't allow us to forget the blessings of Jesus Christ that he's poured out on us, the promised one, the one that was sent, the one who came, the one who taught us, the one who delivers us from our sins. Lord, as we wait on you today, give us unwavering hope. Grow our hope. Grow our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.